are listening to audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. Our preaching passage from this morning is John chapter 6, verses 16 to 21. John 6, 16 to 21. Hear the word of the Lord. When evening came, his disciples went out to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we believe in the Holy Spirit. We thank you, O God, that you are not only God with us and for us, but you are God in us. You dwell among us even to this day by your Spirit. And so, Lord, I pray now that your Spirit breathes life into us, that revive you revive our hearts through the Spirit. I pray, Father, that we take great comfort this morning knowing that you are near us, that you're with us, and I pray now you glorify yourself among us. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Uh, A.W. Tozer once wrote, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. When you think about God, what is the first thing that comes into your mind? If honestly, honestly, if you were to take a self-assessment of your thoughts, what do you think about first? We know what the scriptures say, many of us, about who God is, but what do we truly believe? What do our lives project. Maybe you picture God like the old grandpa in the sky, kind of like the Father Father Time in the old claymation movies, Uh, the kind of God with the long flowing white beard, uh, the kind of the old clock maker that kind of sets things in motion and takes kind of a step back and is uninvolved with his created order. He's kind of senile, kind of bored, cold, looks at things from a distance, not really engaged or interested in the day-to-day goings-on of this world. Or maybe for you, when you think about God, you have a picture of God in your mind that's kind of like the Jesus is my homeboy kind of God. The God who's your little buddy, who is not ever going to have a serious conversation with you because he just wants to hang out and be your friend and relax. And as long as you and the man upstairs are good and you're not hurting anyone, he is okay with how you live your life. Or maybe your idea of God is kind of the, the used, sales car, used car salesman God, the, the kind of slick and always looking for a deal kind of God. So when you approach God, you're actually looking to kind of try and twist his arm into giving you a good deal, a fair shake of things. You're not seeking him to really know him, but you're really seeking him to get something you want. And then God being the wheel and dealing kind of God he is would love nothing more than cut you a deal. Or maybe for some of you, you see God as kind of weak 
and frail, just begging people to believe in him. You know, when you read the Bible and it talks about God being a jealous God, the picture in your mind is like a teenage boy or girl who throws a temper tantrum because they can't get people to like him. God's a God running around trying to ask everybody if they'll be his friend. And when people say no, <clears throat> he takes a hit to his self-esteem. So your life looks like one in which God needs you in order to be satisfied and fulfilled rather than you needing him. Or maybe more close to home for some of us, and I'd put myself in this category, maybe when you hear about God being a father or Jesus being the bridegroom to his bride, the church, this strikes up feelings of untrustworthiness or abandonment or betrayal, maybe even abuse. So if you're honest with yourself, the first thing that comes into your mind when you think about God is that at any day at the drop of a hat, he's going to walk out on you. That one day you'll wake up and you will find him no longer there. So when you open up your Bible, instead of trusting in the promises of God with your whole heart, you hold a little bit of your heart back just in case he changes his mind on you and bails. For some of us, maybe our picture of God is one of vindictiveness and judgment. He's the God who holds grudges, loves to point out to you everything you're doing wrong, all your imperfections. So you keep kind of distant from this God, and you go through life in fear. Instead of reading the Bible and following what it says out of delight, it is solely duty for you. You do it because it's what you should do, not something you take joy in doing. Your God is cruel, and He's just looking for some way you're going to mess up to give Him more license to bring bad things upon you. You know, sadly, <clears throat> the list, and this list could just go on and on. And there's small semblances of truth in each of these descriptions of God. He is kind, He is our friend, He is our Father. He is just and righteous and judges sin. Those things are true. But for many of us in this room, our main issue keeping us back from living fully devoted lives for the glory of our God is that we know all these truths about God from His Word, about who He is. But amidst all these truths, there's just, there's just a little untruth sprinkled in. Jonathan Edwards said once in his book, Religious Affections, he said, the biggest threat to our faith is not the most vicious, hostile persecution the biggest threat to our faith is the mixture of counterfeit religion with true. Knowing much about the truth of who God is, but having some untruth mixed in. Throughout this sermon series, we have been looking together at God's Word in the Gospel of John, piecing together this vision of Jesus from the miracles of Jesus. And hopefully, this is giving us a, a fuller picture of the real Jesus. Not a partial picture with some untruth mixed in. Not one shaped by our own fancies and our own whims, but a full picture of the character of Christ, of who He is. And today, in these short five verses in John chapter 6, we're continuing to piece together this full picture of Christ given to us through the Apostle John. 
And we find ourselves here in John 6, 16 through 21 on the back end of last week, the feeding of the 5,000. We looked at this last week. If you missed it, I encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon. Jesus has just slipped away from the crowds in verse 15, who were trying to make him king by force, which we looked at again last week. And we know from the Gospel of Mark, so Matthew and Mark also talk about feeding, five, really all the Gospels talk about feeding 5,000. But Matthew and Mark in particular, we're going to take some bits and pieces from what they say about this walking on water account to give us a fuller picture of this event here. And so we go back to Mark, Mark chapter 6. We don't have to turn there. But Mark tells us that Jesus slipped away from the crowds after feeding 5,000 to pray. So we can assume in verse 15 of chapter 6, the end of our text from last week, that Jesus has gone up to the mountain to pray alone, to get away, as he often does in the gospel accounts. So while he's praying <clears throat> alone, excuse me, his disciples get in a boat and they head across the Sea of Galilee towards Capernaum. The Sea of Galilee, <clears throat> sorry, weather changing. The Sea of Galilee is about 600 feet below sea level. And so when the cool air from the tablelands heads down into the, mixes with the warm air from the Sea of Galilee, it was known to have some strong storms that kind of would sprue up on the sea. And sometimes these storms would come along very, very quickly. So a storm picks up in verse 18, we just read, and the disciples are rowing and they're rowing, making little progress. Again, going back to Mark chapter 6, Mark says they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. So they're rowing into the wind. And when they'd rowed a few miles into the wind, they fighting this storm on the Sea of Galilee, they look up and they see this, this figure walking towards them on the water, and John says they were frightened. Like, yeah, of course. Like, who would not be frightened? You're trying not to die on the water, right? You're trying not to drown. You look up, and something or someone is walking towards you, not swimming towards you, but walking towards you on the water. It's Jesus, right? And he gets near the boat, and he comforts them with his words, and he comforts them with his presence. And he says, it is, it is I, do not be afraid. <clears throat> John writes that they were glad when he got into the boat. Yeah. And miraculously, they were across the lake, immediately across the lake to the other side. And everything this miracle story teaches us about the character of Christ can be really boiled down into two words. Two words that we're going to really unpack this morning, and it's these two words, Jesus is transcendent and Jesus is imminent. Jesus is transcendent and Jesus is imminent. So the rest of our sermon this morning, we are going to look into what it means for Jesus to be transcendent and for him to also be imminent. All right. So first, first, <clears throat> Jesus being transcendent, it's a big word. But Jesus being transcendent means that he is exalted above his creation and demonstrates both sovereign control and authority over creation. All right, I'm going to read it again. Jesus being transcendent means that he is exalted over, above his creation and demonstrates both sovereign control and authority over his creation. So, for example, Psalm 97.9, speaking of God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. 
Jesus himself says in Matthew eleven twenty seven, 27, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So Jesus has this transcendent power of God. Jesus as God is king. We looked at that last week. He is king over everything he made. He rules over it with power and authority. Again, in looking at Matthew and Mark, Matthew 14 and Mark 6, uh, as I said, these two accounts complement the walking on water text we're looking at today. Jesus walking on water helps, uh, it shows in Matthew 14 and Mark 6 that when Jesus got into the boat, the storm calmed. That's not explicit in John 6, but the storm calms down. He doesn't even verbally rebuke the waves and the wind, although he did that. But the storm is calmed by his presence. He just gets in the boat and it calms down. Another word used to describe the exalted nature, God being exalted over his creation, another word the Bible uses to describe that is the word holy. Holy. There are a variety of ways to define the word holy. It's a good church biblical word. We should all know what holy means. The way we're going to define holy this morning is that God is completely other. He is completely set apart. He is completely different than anything our minds can comprehend or imagine. So let's take a a brief detour, just for a few minutes, and let's talk about the holiness of God. If you remember, if you've read the Old Testament at all, and you read Isaiah chapter 6, you remember this is the story where Isaiah encounters God in his glory. Isaiah chapter 6, the Lord, Isaiah walks into the temple... And he beholds the Lord exalted on his throne. The text tells us that the train of the robe of the Lord filled the temple with glory. And around the Lord are two seraphim. And they, on their lips, are reciting over and over, Holy, 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 holy. Now there's great significance in the Hebrew scriptures when there's a threefold repetition of something. Repetition was the way the the Bible emphasized, Jewish people emphasized something of great importance. You know, in English, we have a variety of ways to emphasize something of great importance. We can bold it, we can underline it, we can put it in italics, we can put exclamation points or all caps or emojis. We We can emphasize whatever, right? There are a variety of ways, but in Hebrew, the Hebrew language, the primary way they emphasize something is by repeating it, repeating it. I mean, think about the New Testament, right? I know the New Testament written in Greek, whatever, but Jesus spoke Aramaic, right? He was a Jew. He taught Hebrew. He was a rabbi, and what was his common refrain when he wanted to emphasize something? Truly, truly, I say to you, I mean, I mean, so be it, so be it, listen, Listen, verily, verily, whatever words you want to put there, Jesus would repeat himself if he wanted to express emphasis on what he was about to say. Listen, listen, listen. But repetition to the third degree, so truly, truly to the second degree, repetition to the third degree in Hebrew, the Hebrew language, was to put something at the highest order, the highest significance. And there's only one characteristic in all of the Bible that's ever repeated to the third degree. And it's holy, holy, holy. 
It doesn't say anywhere, love, 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 or mercy, 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 or grace, 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 or wrath, 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 or justice, justice, justice. It says, holy, holy, holy. Why? Why is God's holiness so important to us and to himself? Well, the word holy, as I said before, has a variety of meanings. It can mean set apart for a purpose. It can mean unique, distinct. Karl Barth was a German theologian, mid-20th century. He said this. He said, uh, holiness means to be holy other. W-H-O-L-L-Y. Holy other. Completely other. Completely distinct than anything else known or unknown to our minds as human beings. The opposite of something holy is something profane. So if you have a diagram, a, a little line graph here, profane's on one end, holy's on the other end. Profane simply means, by definition, something that's ordinary, something that's not unique. So holy is something that is completely unique, completely set apart, completely distinct. Now to say that God is holy, holy, holy is to put him in a place that is so utterly unique it is incomprehensible that he is unlike anything we can possibly imagine or conjure up, that he is unlike humans, angels, animals, idols, false gods. There is nothing like him nor any person that can ever come close to measuring up to him. The king, our king who dwells in the heavenlies, in Isaiah 6 does not, as Acts 17 tells us, live in temples made by hands. He isn't served by us because he needs anything from us. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. There's nothing we can give him he doesn't already have or that he hasn't already given us to give back to him. It's like secret Santa at your kid's school. Do your kids buy you Christmas gifts? Yeah, they do. Is it with your money? Yeah, it is. (laughs) He's not a human being nor contrived by any human imagination. He is the Lord Almighty, the eternal King of glory. You know, many times we treat God's holiness as just one attribute of God's among many. That God is holy, but he's also loving and gracious and just and kind. And that is true to a certain extent. But I would love to make the case that God's holiness is the attribute of God and all other attributes fall within that category. That he is holy and because he is holy other, every attribute is holy other as well. So he's completely unique in his love. He's completely unique in his mercy. He's completely unique in his grace. He's completely unique in his justice. He's completely unique in his wrath. He is completely unique, holy, utterly set apart in who he is, that holiness defines every characteristic about who he is, not just one among many. Luke 149, Mary exclaims in her Magnificat when she's singing praise to the Lord, she says, holy is his name. It's his name. He is exalted. And Jesus, being the God-man, he is fully God and fully man, embodied in one person. He is sinless. He's authoritative. He is exalted. When Jesus takes a stroll across the sea and he is beheld by his disciples in their boat, Matthew tells us that their response to him is worship. They worship him. They declare, truly you are the Son of God. Awe, wonder, majesty, 
seeing in Jesus one that is holy of her, but he is holy. And that should be our response as well, church. I mean, when was the last time that you or I were truly in awe of Christ? When was the last time we were, we were speechless before him? That we had to cover our mouths because there was nothing for us to say. You know, every single week we come into this room for the primary purpose of offering praise as a church to our God. We come and we offer just feeble words, broken words, redeemed words, yet broken words to this God who made us and stands above his creation, sustaining it and governing it by his very power. The God who has the right to claim every square inch of this known universe because he made it and it is his and he can do with it whatever he pleases. We come to worship that God, but oftentimes when we walk into this room, our, I'm speaking myself, our hearts are distracted. Our minds are occupied with the goings-on of, of our week or maybe even the morning. I mean, if you're like me, often when I walk through those doors <laughs> today being no exception, it's like I've just fought World War III trying to get my kids here. It's crazy. It's crazy. The last thing on my mind when I walk through those doors is worshiping the risen Christ. So my words come across oftentimes as, as lifeless in my worship, as, as not full of any kind of revivification by the Spirit, because my heart's divided, my heart's distracted. I mean, that's why, that's why we have a call to worship every single week at Emmanuel. <clears throat> so, excuse me, it's why Cody or whoever's leading the service reads scripture over us. A call to worship really serves two purposes. One, a call to worship, whether, you know, we're not just reading the Psalms to get you to be quiet and have a seat like we're dimming the lights at a theater to let you know the play's about to start. That's not what a call to worship is. But first, a call to worship is we are trying to offer you the opportunity to find peace have a moment of, of quiet before we enter into communing with the Lord. And then second, a call to worship reminds us that we are, we are crossing a threshold at that moment, a threshold from conversation about kids or football or work into a qualitatively different conversation, one that centers on the majesty and the glory and the kindness of God in Christ. The call to worship prepares us for the next few moments when we as a body say in unison together, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Jesus walking on water demonstrates the transcendence, the holiness, the authority, the power of God in the person of Jesus Christ. He is completely unique, completely other, completely holy, and he is worthy to be worshipped by us. But at the same time, that's the first word. At the same time, this account also demonstrates the imminence of Christ. And the imminence of Jesus just means that he is near and involved with his people. That he's near us. That he's involved. That he doesn't stand aloof above his creation, distant and cold from us. That he isn't the clockmaker God who is not concerned with the ins and outs of your life. But he is near you, and he's with you, inside you, 
through the Holy Spirit if you are a believer in Christ. And how do I know that from this text? How do I know that Jesus is near his people? He gets in the boat. Jesus doesn't just walk by. He doesn't just stand at a distance and watch his disciples struggle and strain under the weight of a storm. He gets in the boat. And then he speaks. And he reassures them that he is with them and not to be afraid. It is I. Do not be afraid. It is I. Do not be afraid. I think about when my kids are scared at night, <clears throat> maybe a, a storm's blowing in, or maybe they have a bad dream, or you know, maybe the darkness is just a little too overwhelming that night for them. When those moments happen, and I hear through the, the little baby monitor that we have in our room, their little voices, you know, call out, Daddy, you know, Daddy. I don't, in those moments, pretend I don't hear them. I don't offer harsh words of shame. Riley, Ellie, you just need to pull it together. You need to be big girls. Ride out this storm. Do you not know that bad dreams aren't real? I mean, come on. Why are you guys not letting your mom and me sleep? We're tired. Why are you always calling on me to come up here and help you when you're scared? No. I don't do that. Nor do I simply let them remain alone in their fear. Letting them shiver and shake in their beds all night afraid of the unknown. Now, what, what I do is I go upstairs, I open their doors, I pull them out of their beds, and I hold them, and I rock them in their chairs and remind them that it's going to be all right, that I'm with them, that the storm outside can't hurt them, that they're going to be okay, that they're safe, that I'm never going to leave them, that I'll be here with them in their fear, I'm near to them. I offer them my words and I offer them my presence. So for some of you in this room, you simply need to be reassured by the presence and the words of Christ. There's so many anxieties and fears that just resonate in our hearts and our minds and our lives on a week-to-week basis. So many things that occupy our thoughts, things that keep us up at night things that could paralyze us as husbands, wives, as parents, as Christ followers, as students. We let them paralyze us. And you need to be reassured that everything's going to be all right, that it's all going to be okay, that you're going to make it. And it's in those moments of fear, it's in those moments of anxiety, it's in those moments of doubt that the transcendent God of the universe the God who's fully capable of defeating every single enemy in this world with just a single word, the God who made you, the God who remade you, if you're a believer, that that God who sits above all rulers and authorities, who laughs and scoffs at rulers of this world who think they have any kind of independent power, that that God knows your name, Christian. That that God has your best interests at heart, that that God will stoop and serve you and love you and hold you through that storm. He will give you his very presence. He has given you his very presence in the Holy Spirit. And he has given you his precious promises and his word that he's going to be with you. He comforts you with his presence and he comforts you with his word. 
mean, hear these words from this transcendent yet imminent God. Isaiah 57, 15, Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, transcendence, and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite, imminence. Psalm 113, 5-8, Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth, transcendence, but who raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people, eminence. And Jesus Christ, our God, who is seated on high, has stooped. He has bent down to lift up your head. He stepped away from his throne in glory to put on frail human flesh and dwell among us. One of the best depictions in the scriptures of this transcendent and imminent God that runs throughout the entirety of the scriptures is this picture of the tabernacle in the temple. The tabernacle, this portable, costly place of worship where God's presence would dwell and where he would display his glory. You know, everywhere the nation of Israel would travel, they'd take this portable dwelling place of God with them and they would set it up in the middle of the camp. The Ark of the Covenant, which, the hell, which held the presence of the Lord, so to speak, would dwell in the middle of the tabernacle in the most holy place. And Israel and the nations would know that their God is a God who dwells among them. That He's not just aloof, but He is holy, but He's also among His people. And then Solomon constructs this temple in Jerusalem, this ornate, majestic temple, this beautiful temple. The Ark of the Covenant is brought into the temple. And the glory of God descends on the temple, the holy, transcendent God, again, imminent God, dwelling with his people in the temple. And through the tabernacle and the temple's beauty, through the fact that the Ark of the Covenant resided in the most holy place, this, this place where only one person once a year could come in and only after doing ritual cleansings and washings and confessings, that's not a word, but we're going to use it, all these things before he can come into the presence of the Lord, all those images in that picture of the tabernacle and the temple and everything that went along with that were to demonstrate to us, to display to us that God is transcendent, that he's exalted, that he's holy, that he's other, that you cannot casually just approach him that he sets the terms for worship and living, not us. And at the same time, those pictures were also meant to communicate God's imminence. That he dwells in the midst of his people. That he is with them. His delight is being with his people. That God is not so far above us that he is unengaged with us, but that he, is also, he also draws near to us as his people. So when Israel and the nation saw the tabernacle or the temple, their attention would not be drawn to the might of Israel, which they were not mighty, but it would be drawn to the presence of their God. And this reality of God's transcendence and eminence, it reaches its apex in the New Testament when Jesus comes on the scene, right? John chapter 1, verse 14. I feel like we say it every week, but it's a great verse to just memorize. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus comes on the scene in John chapter 2, enters the man-made temple made with hands, and He says, I'm the temple. 
destroy this temple, I'll raise it back up in three days. He's saying, hey, you want to meet with God? You come through me. The holiness of God can be seen in me, but also the eminence of God can be seen in me. True temple, where the glory of God dwelled, would now be in Jesus Christ. And when Christ leaves this earth, he doesn't leave us templeless, but he sends his spirit to reside in us as his people. To where Paul can now say in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that our bodies are now the temple of the living God. And all of us with the Spirit of God in us are like living stones, 1 Peter chapter 2. Living stones being built up together into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The world and us in this room experience the imminence of God in Christ through us. We remind one another that God is near, that He's with us, that He's among us, that He is in us through the Spirit. The transcendent God has made Himself near through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in us. And Jesus walks on water to show His greatness and His glory to His people, and He gets in the boat and speaks comfort to show His proximity and nearness to His people. And this all finds its culmination at the end of all things when the resurrected Christ will be on his throne high and exalted and we will cry out, Revelation chapter 7, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And yet, even then, in the transcendence of God, when we behold his glory and fullness, even then he will wipe away our tears. He will step down off his throne to wipe away the tears in our eyes because he's also imminent. For their death will be no more, neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, for the former things will have passed away. That we, for all of eternity, will live in the presence of the transcendent yet imminent God in Christ Jesus. And to that we rejoice. Let's pray together. Father, forgive us for thinking less of you in our hearts and in our minds. Forgive us for taking for granted your presence with us. May we not be presumptuous that you kind of that you just dole out dole out infinite amounts of grace regardless of how we approach you or respond to you. Yes, you are eternally gracious and eternally merciful. You have demonstrated grace to us in spite of us. But Father, may we be a a praying expectant people. Not just a people who take things for granted. We thank you for Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you did not stand far off, from, far off from us to see us wallow around in our sin, trying to find our way back to you, like groping in the darkness, but you came near to us in Christ. You sent Jesus 
to fulfill the side of the covenant we were supposed to fulfill but couldn't. You not only kept your side of the covenant of your people, you kept our side of the covenant. And without you, O oh God, we are dead in our sin. We are hopeless. We are lost. We are useless. But praise be to God in Christ Jesus our Lord that you sent Him to die for us. And that He didn't stay dead, but He rose again three days later to the glory of God the Father. Thank You for sending the Spirit to us. May we, O oh God, prepare ourselves each week. May we prepare ourselves before we enter into Your presence together as a body and expect You to move. May we expect You to move and be ready for it when You do. We love You, Lord. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Church. To learn more about Emmanuel or to give, go to Emmanuel with an I, Birmingham.com. You can also follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Emmanuel Birmingham.